Well, welcome back to the Palview Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. Uh, once again, my name is Trey Hinkle. I'm with the lead pastor here at Palview Christian Church in beautiful central Oregon, where from outside of my window, I can see Smith Rock, a mecca for rock climbing people all over the world. I can see the Cascades. What a beautiful day today is. And uh, uh, our associate pastor just planted a Japanese maple right outside of the offices as well. So this is great, a great time of the year. We're finally hitting summer. Uh, we are putting some finishing touches to our renovation to our fellowship center. So things are just going great. If you ever find yourself in Central Oregon over a weekend, we'd love to have you join us at uh, Palview Christian Church at 8.30 and 10.30 in our uh, worship center. 11.30 is our traditional service over in our historic chapel. It'd be great to get to know you and meet you if you're ever in the area. Anyways, we're uh, continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke, and we are going to be finishing up chapter 8 today. Uh, three stories, but we're going to combine them. Uh, they would typically be three different sermons, I, I think, in other years. But I have begun to see them as all really making one point. So as you sit back and listen, see if you can kind of figure out what the thread is that ties them together. So we're in uh, Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26, the first story. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have, you do, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to part from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and, de and declare how much God has done for you. And so he went away, proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So now last week, we saw Jesus and the disciples. They were getting into a boat to cross to the other side. This week, now you see why. Here was his destination. Not just a pleasure cruise. He was on a mission. If you look at a map, you'll see that Jesus is, is crossing the sea from Galilee into really what is known as foreign territory. It's not Jewish country. It's the Decapolis region. That was mainly where Gentiles lived. And up to this point in his ministry, Jesus has focused in on what he called the lost sheep of Israel. 
But here, in Luke chapter 8, at this point of his ministry, there now seems to be an intentionality, a purposeful decision on Jesus' part to go into what some would have called enemy territory. Now, there's a hint about what the main point is, because that term, enemy territory, is more accurate than you would ever imagine. <clears throat> now, what's waiting for Jesus on the other side? Well, it would honestly freak me out if I had been there. Uh, the disciples land, and all of a sudden they're rushed by a man who's wildly out of control. He's demon-possessed. Uh, he's naked. He is wounded because he has cut himself. He has been pushed to the outskirts of society. He's so dangerous that he has been chained up, but he is so strong that he breaks those chains. And now he's forced to live out in the wilderness among the tombs. And as Jesus lands, he comes screaming, running at Jesus. You see, Jesus wasn't welcome. The demonic force that had ruined this man's life, that had taken over this man's life, um, they knew what Jesus' presence meant for them and this region. Verse 28, verse 28 says, uh, going back to verse 28, it says that uh, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. That shows there that the demons knew exactly who Jesus was. They knew exactly what he was doing there. They understood that a divine authority had come into their presence, and that divine authority was there to clean things up. So they try a very interesting tactic, a show of strength that was not real. You know, you know uh, armies throughout the ages have used um, trickery, um, deceit, to try to bolster um, what looks like their ranks would be. Um, back in the Civil War, um, when they wouldn't have cannon, they would actually fell trees and they would use these huge logs and, and make them look like cannon. So it looked like a, a, a place of defense was way more fortified than it really was. Uh, it wasn't weaponry. It was just fake. Uh, later on in World War I, they started to make fake tanks. Uh, World War II, they would put uh, these uh, facades over trucks to make it look like they had way more tanks. They would take uh, some barges and they would actually make them look more like uh, troop transports or, or, or battleships. Uh, so if a, an enemy was flying overhead, they would think, oh my goodness, they're, they're amassing a bunch of ships over here. And that would both be a feint, you know, saying, we're going to be attacking over here, but they really were going to attack someplace else. And it was also, again, to, to show that they were stronger in their defenses uh, than what they really were. So it's pretty amazing, the, the, the manufacturing of illusion that makes somebody think that you're more powerful than what you really are. It's a, a great tactic of our spiritual enemy. He, he gets people to, to be afraid of what he is up to. He likes to make us forget that his doom has already been written about in the Bible. That when you read the story, you see that he loses. And, and the power that is available to you and I as followers of Jesus is far superior than anything that the devil could ever concoct. But here are the demons, right? Pretending that they're scary. Jesus says, what's your name? Legion, they said. Well, which, by the way, that's not a name. 
A legion is actually a military force. In the Roman army, a legion was a fighting unit of 6,000 soldiers. It was the biggest, strongest force in the Western world. So they're puffing themselves up. They're hoping to scare Jesus away with the threat of weapons that, if you would compare them to the power of God, they're merely inflatable tanks, right? 6,000, that sounds like it's a, a huge deal, but not really. But they're trying to scare Jesus. They're trying to scare Jesus. But even by trying to scare Jesus, do you see what happens just supernaturally when they come into his presence? If you look back at verse 28, it says, they, the man fell down before Jesus. He is kneeling at Jesus' feet. You know what? And then he says, what have you to do with me? And he identifies Jesus as the son of the most high God. You see, demons have to. They have to bow down. Anytime they're in the presence of the most high, they have to bow down. They might try to scare people, but in Jesus's presence, they have zero power. There's an acknowledgement in the spiritual world, like nothing that we can see in this material world. Because in the spiritual world, there is no question whatsoever. It doesn't matter which team you're on. In the spiritual world, there is an absolute understanding as to who really is in charge. Yeah, the demons are making a lot of noise. But in the end, they know that they have no power over the Son of God. And so there in verse 31, that they try to negotiate their fate. Because they know that they're losing. So they try to, they, they say, um, uh, they begged him, they begged him not to command them to, to, to depart into the abyss, but to be sent into the herd of pigs. See, they know that they're going to have to leave this man. That's what the power of Jesus is going to make them do. They can't stand up to that kind of power. But where is he going to make them go? Into the abyss? Well, now what's the abyss? Well, the abyss is what scripture describes as the final punishment for the devil and his angels. In the book of Revelation, John witnesses the final judgment of the earth, which includes tossing the devil and his minions into the pit that was specially designed for them and their punishment. So this legion of demons, they're, they're now cowards. They're begging Jesus, don't, don't bring about their final destruction. Please don't bring about our final destruction. They say, can we compromise? Can we at least go into that herd of pigs? Now, the fact that pigs were there shows us that this was not a Jewish region because pigs were considered to be unclean. Okay, And the people that were tending the pigs, they would not have been Jewish. So it makes sense being unclean. Uh, if these animals were unclean, there is hope in Legion's mind, at least, that Jesus might allow them to go infest that which is already unclean. And to me, in a kind of surprising move, Jesus allows it. <laughs> the demons then have to leave the man. They have to leave the man. And so they then enter into the herd of pigs. And then we're told that the pigs, now under the influence of the legion, hightail it out of Jesus's presence. And they run back into the water. Now, why do I say back into the water? Pigs don't belong in the water, right? Well, <clears throat> demons do, at least in the Jewish mindset, they do. See, uh, in Jewish lore, uh, the water was where they believed demonic activity originated. It's interesting, going back to the events that we studied last week, that when Jesus calmed the storm, he rebukes the wind and the waves, like they were conscious beings that needed to be scolded for their unruly behavior. 
So it may very well be that when the disciples were in awe of Jesus's power over the wind and the waves, to them it was meaning that Jesus was exercising authority over spiritual forces that would have scared anybody in their right mind. So if the Jewish thought was that the water was where demonic activity began, then it makes sense that it would be the water that was the intended destination of legion, as it wanted to get out of the presence of the, the Son of the Most High God. Now, the demons weren't the only ones who wanted to get out of his presence, because when the herdsmen went to tell their story to the townsmen, we read that there in verses 35 through 37, that the townspeople came out and they were afraid of Jesus. I mean, this guy had a lot of power if he could overpower the man who had been demon-possessed, right? They begged Jesus to leave their region. That power scared them. That power they knew had to be incredible because it was the only thing that could bring about what they were seeing with their own eyes, this lasting change in the demon-possessed man. They used to be demon-possessed man. This was a man who at one point was wild and out of control, but he's now sitting there. A man who had lost all his, all his shame as he had spent his days naked, and now he's clothed. And by the way, here's another sermon altogether, but where did he get those clothes? Somebody had to sacrifice something in order to protect this guy's dignity, right? Somebody had to give up their clothes so that he could be clothed. Here, here's a man who was forever changed. He is now in his right mind, sitting there dressed and in his right mind. Folks, that man is really no different than people today. We, we could debate demon possession all we would want, but the reality is the devil is still alive, alive and well. And he is still wreaking havoc in people's lives every day. The dangerous part is, as C.S. Lewis once noted, the greatest trick that the devil played on humanity was to convince us that he did not exist. The problem is, as he attacks then people in this world, especially in the, the Western modern world, people who deny there to be a spiritual realm, those victims now have no clue as to what's happening in their life. They, they think that their struggle is against mankind. They, they have denied the existence of a spiritual realm, so they have no clue what's happening to them. They can't see it because they've been blinded by it. And they fall easy victims to, to Satan's schemes. Evil spirits still have great influence in our world today. And as miraculous as what Jesus did for this man in the tombs, folks, God still wants to do for people today. When people come to the spiritual understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for them, God's power is available to change who they were to what he wants them to be, to recreate them in the image of Jesus. As Colossians 2.20 tells us, you have died with Christ and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. Well, that's the first story. Real quickly, let's move to the next one. Um, we read now in verses 40 through 48. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent 
uh, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately the discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, mm, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him. You see the, 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 the uh, similarities here? Falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Now go in peace. Now here's something incredible that happens. I, I don't want you to miss this. Jesus gets off the boat. And a, a huge crowd comes around him. It, it's like it's the kind of crowd that that uh, when you're watching a baseball game, and uh, the last pitch is is thrown, and the guy, the pitcher, has thrown a no hitter, and it wins the game, and he is swarmed by people. Right? That's the kind of language Luke is using to to describe what's going on as Jesus is getting out of the boat. Right? And amidst this swarm of people, there's a woman who has been suffering for 12 years from this horrible disease. And yet she has such great faith that she believes that if she could just touch the fringe of Jesus's clothes, she might be healed. So she does. She reaches out. She touches Jesus from behind. And as soon as she touches the fringe of his clothes, Luke says immediately she is healed. Immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Now, Luke is a doctor, by the way, and he admits here that her condition was out of reach for the medical community. He said she had spent all of her money to try to get doctors to help her. But money can't do this. Medicine can't do this. She is desperate and hopeless without a miracle. And yet, she's healed. Her faith in the power of Jesus created the opportunity for God to work in her life. And in this bizarre interaction, Jesus says, hey, who touched me? And Peter's like, um, uh, who hasn't touched you, right? Again, he's swarmed by all these people. But the touch of faith was clearly detected by Jesus. In verse 46, he says, I perceive that power has just left me. In other words, he knows that a miracle has just happened. Somebody received a miracle. Now, one more thing to note. By now stopping and calling attention to what just happened, Jesus is actually putting this woman in a very precarious situation. Very scary situation. You see, the woman had been bleeding. In her menstrual cycle, she'd been bleeding for 12 years constantly straight, which would make her all the time, 24-7, spiritually and ceremonially unclean. She could not go to the temple. She could not uh, have any close relationships with anybody. She had been, she has this condition that made her an outcast. And <clears throat> by touching this rabbi, this man of God, this holy man, she has made him unclean according to their laws. And probably she's, she, now that I just think about this, she's actually made everybody in that crowd unclean. 
So the last thing that the woman needs or wants is to be called out. She was hoping that she might just kind of be flying under the radar, that she just touches the fridge from behind. Well, she's now caught, so she fesses up. She tells her story. But now she's got this similar testimony as the demoniac had because she has been changed. She has been made whole. She had a condition before Jesus. And because of Jesus and his power, she proclaims her condition after her encounter. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, it's not money and it's not medicine. It's your faith. It's your faith that has made you well. Now, today, we live in a day and an age that says if you can't measure it or scientifically test it, then it doesn't, it's not real, right? We forget, we've forgotten that there is a spiritual realm. We've forgotten it because the material realm is so noisy, so demanding of our attention, that, that we completely forget often that there is a spiritual realm. Now, what was going on here does not mean that we should not use modern medicine, that it's wrong to do that, to get treatments or whatever. That's not what this is all about. But as we are even seeking that, what we should always remember is we cannot separate that which was not meant to be separated. God created the material world and God created the spiritual world, and he designed them to operate hand in hand, which means that we should not tear the spiritual realm from the material realm, okay? As we allow the material world treatment to battle the sicknesses, we should never, ever, ever neglect seeking spiritual treatment as well. That's why we have people pray uh, for other people. You know, if you have something that we can be praying for, we ask for those prayer requests. Because yes, a, a doctor may do some great things for you, but we believe that we need to bring in a spiritual element to, to what's going on in our life when we are sick. The woman's story is actually now set in the middle of this third story that is taking place. That, that's So that's the woman's story. And her story is now set in the middle of this third story, a story of a man named Jairus. Uh, back in verses 41 and 42, Jesus has been asked by Jairus to engage in another mission. His 12-year-old daughter, very sick child. Jairus is a very important religious ruler. He has heard of the healer, and so he's asked the healer to come heal his daughter. Exactly what the woman was wanting when she reached out and touched Jesus' garment. And so Jesus is willing to go, but because the woman has touched him and he's now got to deal with this, he's momentarily delayed. And so this is what we read of from verse 49 and following. While Jesus was still speaking to the woman, Somebody from Jairus's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one 
what had happened. Here's a family in crisis. Here's a religious leader who has recognized that his religion is not going to give the true solution that he needs. He's desperate. So he comes to Jesus with a trust that if anyone can do anything about the situation, it's this radical rabbi. So can you then imagine the pain, the heartbreak, as Jesus, who has been delayed again with this woman who had been bleeding, now he begins to head for Jairus' home, but they are now met by an entourage coming back from Jairus' homestead. And you can just read the news in their faces. Why bother the teacher anymore? He's too late. He's too late. Often in our lives, we come to the Father with our needs. And we, we have an idea in our hearts of what we want Jesus to do for us. So we come to him with the what and the when, and sometimes even the how. And, and one of the ways that God will deepen our faith often is to answer in a way that in the end, we, we know we'll be perfect, but at the moment, it's not what we have asked for. It's not what we have asked for. See, J Jairus had come to Jesus because he had faith in Jesus to be able to heal his daughter. That's what he wants Jesus to do. Just like uh, Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, when they sent word to Jesus to say, Lazarus is sick, he needs you to come and heal him. They wanted Jesus to heal him. But in that situation, Jesus delayed as well, to the point where Lazarus has died. And again, the sisters believed Jesus was too late. But what we see there is Jesus had a higher purpose in mind than to just heal Lazarus. And here we see that Jesus has a higher purpose in mind than just to heal Jairus' daughter. So why bother the teacher anymore? You are too late. Jesus responds, don't fear. Don't fear. You know that that's the most frequently commanded command in the Bible, right? Don't fear. The most frequently given command is don't fear. Remember, demons tried to get Jesus and the boys to be afraid because fear is the enemy's tactic. That's really all the devil has is fear. He definitely cannot defeat God. He cannot thwart God's purpose. So in absolute confidence of the reality of the situation, Jesus commands them, don't fear, just believe, and she will be made well. Ho, 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 ho. Now, she will be healed. Isn't it a little bit for, late for that, Jesus healed? Um, that's not our reality anymore. You can't heal what she's got now. She's dead. You can't heal death. There's no coming back from death. And yet when Jesus comes to the house, goes into the room, he declares she's not dead, just asleep. Now, some liberal theologians and scholars, they try to diminish to diminish Jesus's power. They try to diminish what happens next by claiming that Jesus was actually telling the truth, that she wasn't really dead, um, that somehow Jesus knew that Jairus's daughter was not physically dead, just mostly dead, like the princess bride. And if mostly dead, then partly alive. And if that were the case, then Jesus's power is not as great as what we have come to believe, that he's not really raising her from the dead. He's just waking her up. 
Now, you know the problem with that interpretation. It overlooks the reality of the crowd's response to Jesus' strange declaration. They had been mourning the, the death of this girl, and now they're laughing. They're not laughing from joy that, uh, oh, the girl may not really be dead. They are laughing in ridicule. Because again, Luke, a, a doctor who would be quite familiar with the process and the reality of death, he tells us that they knew that she was dead. There was no question about whether she was mostly dead or all dead. She was all dead. So why does Jesus say that she's asleep? Well, because in, in God's perspective, death is like sleep. It's, it's not the final blow. It's not the end of the story. You know, you, you see your husband or your wife, and they're sleeping there. And I don't mean to be creepy, but you sometimes watch them. And sometimes they might seem dead to the world. You might even use that, um, uh, that phrase. Boy, my wife, man, last night she was dead to the world. Well, did that mean she was dead? No, she was asleep. But for all intents and purposes, it's like, yeah, she is dead. In God's perspective, death is like a sleep, right? Jesus sees past the material world. He knows the, the spiritual reality. And so he knows death is not the end of the story. Death is like a sleep if you've got your mind set on eternity. So in a loud voice, he commands the little girl to get up. And it says that her spirit returns to her body and she obeys. She gets up. There is no doubt there is no doubt that Jesus just served the final blow against the biggest weaponry that the devil uses against mankind, death. This, folks, is the power of a living God. So now, <clears throat> do you see the main point? In every one of these stories, there are spiritual strongholds that have been built up to destroy humanity. Demons, disease, death, strongholds, great military term, strongholds, fortresses, heavenly defended cities. It's like when sin entered into God's world, the devil was allowed in and he began to build up the walls and he barred up the windows and he bolted the doors and nobody is getting rid of him until, well, until Jesus, until Jesus, until Luke chapter seven, actually Luke chapter eight. Church, if Here's the point. If Jesus can handle demons and diseases and death, oh, and by the way, disasters as well from last week, there's this amazing implication for our lives. These stories are included in Luke's gospel to show us that there is nothing, nothing that the enemy can throw at us, nothing that we will encounter that Jesus is not bigger and stronger and better than. This last part of chapter 8 is Jesus declaring all-out war on all the strongholds of Satan. He's kicking down the front door of Satan's house, saying, I am taking back what Adam gave away. Back in Genesis, when God created the world, Adam, in his sin, gave it all away. So Jesus is saying, I am restoring a fallen world. God did not create a world where there was disease, one day there's going to be no disease that will cause pain and struggle ever again. Jesus is saying, I am reclaiming absolute authority in the spiritual realm, where once angels left their 
created stations and they fell as they rebelled against God. Uh, there, there's a movie out there and uh, a wrestler, Rowdy, Roddy Piper, he's playing the, the main character and it's like a Schwarzenegger type character. And he's got this iconic line where he busts in to battle the aliens that have disguised themselves as humans. And he said, I've come to chew bubblegum and kick some butt. He uses a different term, but I've come to chew bubblegum and kick some butt. And I'm all out of bubblegum. That's exactly what Jesus is telling Satan right now. He's telling the demons. He is telling the disease. He is telling the death. I've come to chew bubblegum and kick some butt, and I'm all out of bubblegum. See, God didn't create a world where death existed. Adam's sin introduced it. So Jesus is declaring with absolute undeniable power that the kingdom of God is being restored under his authority, the authority of the Messiah. And it begins here in Luke 8. It's going to be perfectly, I mean, perfectly completed one day. You see, Satan thinks he's winning. He thinks he's somehow hurting God by attacking us. But Jesus here comes on the scene and essentially puts the devil on notice. Your days are numbered. It's inevitable. So enjoy your time now because I'm taking it back. Disasters, demons, disease, death, all under my command. And I'm reclaiming what you warped, Satan, what you warped. And I'm going to be bringing it back under the authority of my father. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, guess what? You have enlisted in the greatest army that has ever been assembled. When you confessed Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Romans 10.9, you swore your allegiance to a new commander-in-chief. And you were given the greatest weaponry that the world has ever witnessed. So great that death was defeated permanently when Jesus came out of the tomb. That kind of power. When men and women join the armed forces in our country, they take an oath. When you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in the power that raised him from the dead, you are taking an oath. And it's an oath that tells God that you will be engaged in kingdom work. You see, we are called into a spiritual battle. And that battle is still raging around us. Now, we don't have to fear. The instruments of war that the enemy uses against us, they make a lot of noise. They attempt to cripple us with limitations, uh, both physical limitations and emotional limitations. But Scripture tells us that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. You have to know that. You have to know that absolutely. You know, I hear so many awesome statements from so many American patriots that this country, America, is the greatest country in the history of the world. Folks, that exudes confidence and boldness and commitment, right? Well, next week, we're going to celebrate the beauty and strength of America. Yeah, I'm blessed. We are all blessed to live in this amazing country. But church, there's an even greater blessing than that. We live as children of God in his kingdom, which is way better and greater and more eternal than America can ever be. It is our duty then as patriots of God's kingdom, to be as confident and bold and committed to that kingdom, which is far superior to any nation, even one as amazing as ours. Because scripture is clear. Demons, disease, and death, they have all been defeated. There's nothing left. 
So folks, it's time to pick up arms, to man our stations, to declare that we've come to chew bubblegum and kick some butt, and we're all out of bubblegum. So anyway, that's what we're, that's my encouragement to you today. There is a lot of stuff going on out in the world, and we can wring our hands and, and, and say, oh, poor us, woe is us. And yet God says, no, 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 look what I've done. I've taken care of the demoniac. I, I, I cured this lady's disease that she had struggled with for 12 years. And I, and I really kicked death's butt. So what else, what else can the devil throw at us? Nothing. Nothing. We are more than overcomers, guys. We have victory. So we need to get out there and fight. All right. Well, again, thanks for listening. Um, chapter 9 next week. Thank you, uh, Lisa uh, Welly, my executive producer. Uh, Steve Pittman uh, for being our tech guy and uh, making sure that uh, we get these things out on the airwaves. And thank you for your time listening to what's going on here. Again, you're invited to come join us. And if you do, just come up to me and say that you've been listening to us on the uh, on the podcast and uh, introduce yourself. That'd be great. All right. God bless you. Have a great week. <laughs>